many years ago, a fellow named Shakespeare in a, in a play that he wrote called Romeo and Juliet said, what's in a name? What we call a rose smells sweet, but would it smell as sweet if we called it something else? Dale Carnegie, talking about names, said this, a person's name is the sweetest sound in any language to that person. Names can evoke some strong emotions, strong responses. Just ask a Texan about the Alamo or talk to somebody from Boston about the New York Yankees. Now in the Bible, people's names often relate closely to something about their life, to their, their roles or their responsibilities. Now in a bit, we're gonna come across some names. Uh, some names like Palu, which means extraordinary. You think his parents had high expectations? Or how about Korah, which means baldy? And Nepheg, which means clumsy. Now, if you're calling a child clumsy at birth, is that kind of a chicken or an egg thing? You see, names identify us, don't they? Um, names can represent us, and they can take on a meaning on their own based on who we are and how we live. Today, we're going to look at some of the things that God revealed about himself through his name, Yahweh. So let's read in Exodus 6, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for under compulsion he will let them go, and under compulsion he will drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as strangers. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. At the end of chapter 5, last week, um, Moses came to God for an explanation. Why haven't you saved your people? Why do you continue to let them suffer in bondage? Instead of giving Moses what he wanted, an explanation, God gives Moses what he needs. Moses needed to be comforted and encouraged because of his failure before Pharaoh and because his own people had rejected him. He needed to have his confidence in Yahweh restored. And that's exactly what the Lord did. Moses found that there is encouragement in the name Yahweh. Yahweh didn't explain his actions. He didn't rationalize for Moses because God knew that Moses wouldn't understand. In fact, Moses couldn't understand. That's often what we want too, isn't it? An explanation. If only I understood, then it'd be all right. 
then, then maybe I could fix whatever's wrong. I, I could make it better. But it usually doesn't work out that way, does it? Moses, you see, did not need to understand. He needed encouragement. He needed to place his confidence in Yahweh alone. Moses needed to trust his God. Yahweh reminds Moses that he is still in control. Yahweh says, here's what I'm going to do to Pharaoh and for the people by my mighty hand. I will bring the people out of bondage. Yahweh's telling Moses, hey, guy, I got this. He's always in control, regardless of what circumstances might seem to indicate. And this is a clear, clear statement of God's sovereignty. Yahweh also reminds us that he is faithful. He keeps his promises. He remembers his covenant. He's heard the groanings of the Israelites, and he's taking care of them. Moses has already been told all these things, right? But he needed a refresher. He needed a, a reminder. Fortunately for Moses, God is patient with him, graciously reminding Moses of who he is. And fortunately for us, God does not change. Now, in the midst of this little passage, in verse 3, maybe you caught um, God's statement that he made about his name. I am Yahweh, he says. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Well, what's up with that? Well, as with anything that's kind of puzzling or raises questions, there are a number of different ways of looking at this. And several explanations have been put forward and they've been much debated, um, but I'm just gonna give you what made sense to me. We know that names have great importance in the Bible. Names of places and names of people often describe a distinguishing characteristic or a personality trait that's unique. Now in Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew several names for God. Names like God Most High, Elohim, or God Almighty, El Shaddai, or the Everlasting God, Elolam. And God was also referred to as Yahweh something like a hundred times in the book of Genesis. But the meaning of the name Yahweh was not revealed to the patriarchs. They knew the name, but they didn't understand much of what it meant. There, there was no descriptive, there was no distinctive associated with Yahweh like there was with El Shaddai, El Elohim. So maybe we can think of it like this. A, a small child knows their mother as mommy. That's the experiential knowledge the child has of their mother. Now that child may know that their mother is an architect or a nurse, but they don't know what that occupation is. They only know mom as mommy. And what's more, they don't need to know that mommy is a nurse or an architect. 
Now, a small child also knows their father probably as daddy, right? But once that child starts playing soccer on the team that daddy coaches, well, then they have that player-coach relationship. Now they know daddy as coach. He's still daddy, but he's also coach. So it wasn't the word, that label, Yahweh, that was unknown to the patriarchs. It was the character, it was the, the attributes of God that go with that name that they did not know. They were unaware of what Yahweh represented. Now, Yahweh has already demonstrated his sovereignty and his faithfulness, and he's shown great patience. His compassion, though, is also on display as he hears the groaning of Israel and starts the process of bringing them out of bondage. Read with me in verse 6, and let's see what else Yahweh will reveal about himself. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Well, we all know what therefore is therefore, right? It's there to connect what was just above with what's just below. Effectively, God is saying, I'm telling you this, guys, because I hear the groaning, because I remember the covenant, and because I'm revealing myself to you as Yahweh in ways that no one has seen before. I am Yahweh, the God of salvation. You see, there is salvation in the name Yahweh. The structure of these verses is really pretty remarkable. It begins and ends with the declaration, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And then there are seven statements of what Yahweh will do. Because I am Yahweh, I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land and I will give it to you. And then in the middle of describing what he'll do, God says, you know what? Because I do all this, you will know that I am Yahweh, the God of salvation. This is Yahweh getting personally and, and directly involved in the lives of his people. Now, these seven I will statements, they form four basic promises. The first promise is that of deliverance. I will bring you out from under the labors of the Egyptians, and I will rescue you from their bondage. The main thing the Israelites needed at this point, at least physically, was to be rescued from oppression, to be liberated from their bondage. Deliverance of this kind, in these kind of conditions, it's the basic definition of salvation. The second promise we see 
is that of redemption. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now, redemption is fundamentally a financial transaction. And in these ancient times, there was this rule, basically, that a near kinsman could redeem someone from slavery. They could pay the debt and, and make that person free. Now, not only is Yahweh going to redeem Israel, he's going to pay their debt, but he's going to render judgment on those who have oppressed the Hebrew people, his people. And this next promise shows exactly how Yahweh can perform that near, kin, near kinsman role. And that is through adoption. I will take you, that is, I will adopt you as my people, and I will be your God. Think back to Exodus 4 and verse 22. God called Israel his firstborn son. And God had already made a similar promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, where in verse 7 we find him saying, I will be Elohim, most high God, to you, Abraham, and to your offspring. But there's a new depth here. There's a new depth to this salvation role in Yahweh. And adoption casts Yahweh fully in the role of father, loving his children and seeking justice for them. You see, God's desire is for an intimate relationship of mutual affection. Now, since they're going to be adopted into the family of Yahweh, the Israelites can look forward to an inheritance, to a possession, and that's the fourth promise. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. The land was another promise of the covenant. And Yahweh, what do we know about Yahweh? We know that he remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. He is faithful. There is salvation in the name of Yahweh, and that salvation it belongs to him alone. It's his sovereign work and no one else can perform it. All that's left for the Israelites is to know him as Yahweh, as Savior, as the God of their salvation. Now, right there in verse 7, he promised them that they would. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. And because he does all the work, guess what? He gets all the glory. This is a marvelous foreshadowing of salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, Philip Ryken, in his commentary on Exodus, describes this so well. It, it is just so good. I, I can't say it any better, so I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus is the liberator who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus is the redeemer who paid the costly price for our sin by suffering and dying on the cross. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. It is also through Jesus that we are welcomed into the embrace of divine love, 
For it is to the church of Jesus Christ that God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And at the end of all our days, Jesus is the one who will bring us to the land of glory. It is by his resurrection that we have an inheritance that is unperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. The Bible summarizes by saying that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. God made his promises long, long ago when he said, I will save you. The way he kept his promises was by sending his son to be and to do everything we need to be saved so that from the beginning to the end, we are saved by his grace. All that is left for us is to know Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Salvation is not about us doing something for God. It is about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All that is required is to trust in Jesus, believing that he has turned the I wills of salvation into the I have done it's of the gospel. Back to Moses. Moses has gotten this amazing reassurance from, from Yahweh, this message of salvation. And Moses goes to the people to share it with them. Let's pick up and read in verse 9. So Moses said this to the sons of Israel, but they did not listen. They didn't listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. In one short verse, we go from all the triumphant I wills of Yahweh to the defeated we won't of the Israelites. At the end of chapter 4, remember the people were worshiping. They were worshiping God and, and they were expectantly watching Moses go to Pharaoh. And then trouble came, bricks without straw. Their burden increased, and where did they turn? Well, they rejected Yahweh, and they went right to the source of their trouble. They went to Pharaoh for help. And when Pharaoh turned them away, what did they do? They attacked Moses and Aaron. They rejected God's appointed messengers. And now, discouraged, still suffering, they won't even listen to the message that Moses brings them from Yahweh, a message of encouragement, a, a message of promise, a message of salvation. They were so broken in spirit that this was not just a message they would not hear. It was a message they could not hear. The Israelites were enslaved by their own slavery. They were trapped and there was no way out as far as they could see. Now, you know, Pharaoh was looking at this and going, my plan's working. This is turning out just like I hoped. And don't you think that's the way that Satan looks at this world today and all the folks that are in bondage to sin? Once again, the Israelites are reminding us of current conditions, and they're reminding us that we all come into the world slaves to sin. 
And just as the Israelites could only be set free by Yahweh's work of salvation, we too are only delivered from the dominion of sin by the saving work of Jesus Christ. We cannot save ourselves from sin. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. Salvation is God's sovereign work. Now, just because the Israelites wouldn't listen, that didn't mean that, Joseph, that Moses' job was done. Read in verse 10. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me, as I am unskilled in speech? Nevertheless, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them a command concerning the sons of Israel and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Moses had already been sent to Pharaoh. Now he's being resent. And just like when he was being sent the first time, Moses raises objections. And they're the same objections that he raised the first time. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess and guess that at least on one occasion, maybe more, we've all had to learn the same lesson again. Some of us maybe more than two times, maybe more than three. Sadly, we're a people that are slow on the uptake and we're slow to um, see our faith. And we're slow to act on our faith. But praise God for his patience with Moses and with us. Where would we be without repeated lessons? Now notice that Yahweh gave a command to Moses and Aaron here. He gave them a mission. He gave them a charge. And the mission was to bring Israel out of Egypt. God called Moses, and in spite of his objections, in spite of his failures, in spite of his being rejected by, by the very people he was supposed to lead, Moses was still God's chosen man. And God had just given his chosen man direct orders. We shouldn't come down too hard on Moses. We all get discouraged. We all have doubts. And we're tempted to quit. But when the discouragement and that doubt come, remember that when God gives you something to do, a mission to accomplish, he will provide whatever is needed. And remember this, there is salvation in the name of Yahweh. These next verses, they're going to seem like maybe they're awkwardly placed. They're, they're in an odd place for a genealogy, but it's there, so let's look at it, and I'm going to apologize in advance for massacring these names, but um, pick up in verse 14, these are the heads of their father's households, the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, Hanak and Palu, Hezron and Carmi, these are the families of Reuben, and the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, 
These are the families of Simeon. And these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, according to their families. And the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the length of, length of Kohath's life was 133 years. And the sons of Merari, Mahli, and Mushi, these are the families of the Levites according to their generations. Now Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the length of Amram's life was 137 years. And the sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elishaba, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. And these are the families of the Korahites. Now Aaron's son, Eleazar, married one of the daughters of Putiel. And she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's households of the Levites according to their families. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their multitudes. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the sons of Israel from Egypt. It was the same Moses and Aaron. It's hard to get excited about a genealogy, isn't it? The, the names are weird, and they're hard to pronounce, but there are a lot of genealogies in the Bible, and so they must be important somehow, or they wouldn't be there, right? So let's look at this one a little closer and see what we can glean. First, a genealogy places people in historical order, confirming familial relationships. And at the very least, this genealogy helps confirm the accuracy of the Bible. It establishes Aaron and Moses as full-blooded uh, Hebrews, and it establishes them as sons of Levi. Now, having, having your name included in the genealogy, well, that must indicate that God knows who you are and, they're, and that you're important to him. Now, many of the people that we find in these biblical genealogies are, are just ordinary folks. People that are created in the image of God. People that need God's grace. It kind of makes them just like us, doesn't it? Francis Schaeffer uh, once said that there are no little people as far as God is concerned. Everyone is important to the Lord. Now notice that this genealogy is introduced in verse 13 with these words, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and it closes with, these are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord spoke. So this list is really focusing on Moses and Aaron. It's significant that um, there's only three of Jacob's sons mentioned here. And Reuben and Simeon just get one verse each for them and their sons. And then we get to Levi. And so I think Simeon and, and 
and Reuben are only there as kind of placeholders to make sure that we understand Levi was the third son of Jacob. And then adding further emphasis to especially Aaron is the fact that only two women are mentioned by name, Aaron's mother and Aaron's wife, Jochebed and Elishaba. Here's a fun fact, Elishaba. Her father and her brother are mentioned. Their names are Aminadab and Nation. And they should be familiar names to us because this father-son combo, guess where they show up? They're in the genealogy of King David. And you know what that means? They're in the genealogy of Jesus. Think that's a coincidence? Probably not. Now, this genealogy, like most, is organized by family. Remember, God set up the family. It, it's his design, and he set it up to be a means of extending his grace and love. Now, I know it doesn't always play out that way. Um, families get messed up all the time because we, we, we're a messed up people living in a fallen world. That's the way it was set up. Now, family, these extended groups of relatives set up by God under the authority of a father, usually, um, one individual. And with authority, what do we know? With authority comes what? Responsibility. And that means that God holds fathers responsible for the spiritual health and well-being of their families. So dads, your job is to love and protect your, this family that God has given you. And that means physically as well, well as spiritually. Teaching them to honor and to serve the Lord. Probably the best way for your family to see God's love is through an overflow of love from your own heart. I think that's the way God intended for it to work. And it's going to take personal commitment to help your family serve the living God. Will you be like a Joshua? Joshua was a man who understood leading a family. Remember what he said just before he was about to die. He gathered all of Israel together. And he said, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a good message for Father's Day. Now we could go on some more about this genealogy, pointing out how so many of the names had, had some special meaning. We could delve into the personal stories of some of these folks. And what we'd find if we did was that, you know, some of them were really, really good people, striving to serve the Lord. And some of them were just plain old so-and-sos, kind of stinkers. Interesting stuff to think about. But what about you? Is your name written in God's genealogy in his book of life? If you know Jesus as your Savior, your name is there. If not, then I'd ask you to remember this. This is the God. This is the God that knows you and wants you 
to be part of his family and to spend eternity with him. Maybe the next time you come across a genealogy, you'll think about it a little more. These next steps, the next few verses, they're, they're basically a recap of what has already happened before we took this side trip on the genealogy. And so they're, they're there to kind of get us back in the groove, back on the same page. Pick up in verse 28. Now it came about on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am unskilled in speech. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Um, let, let me go back to the genealogy just, just for one, one more brief moment. There's this conjecture that the genealogy is not in the right place, that it doesn't belong here, um, that it's an awkward interruption. But it can be argued that it does fit exactly here, that this is precisely where God intended for it to be. Remember in verse 13, this is the first time that we see God speak to Moses and Aaron at the same time with both of them together. And in verse 13, Yahweh gives both Moses and Aaron this formal charge, this mission to lead the people out of Egypt. Both had been called separately, but now they're commissioned together. And so it makes sense for them to establish their provenance to the Israelites and to Pharaoh. Okay, so Back to this commissioning thing. Having been given a charge, that means you have a duty to fulfill. That means following orders. Yahweh didn't ask Moses, hey, would you like to volunteer to maybe go and talk to Pharaoh? No, he gave him an order. Go talk to Pharaoh. Only with authority can can uh, only someone with authority can issue an order. And with such authority, you have to have power to back that up. So this is clearly God's sovereign power on display. Now Moses, true to form, he offers excuses about how he's unfit for the job. You see, Moses hasn't fully realized the roles and responsibilities of his job. Moses is, is very results-oriented. He's, he's performance-oriented. And so his view of success as God's prophet is how do people respond to the message that I bring? Did the Hebrews accept um, him and thereby accept God's message when he came to them? If, he, if they did, yay, success! Did Pharaoh respond positively when, when Moses requested to let the people go? Ah, no, he didn't. Rats, failure. No wonder Moses felt inadequate. What Moses will come to learn, though, is that success as God's prophet is simply accurately and fully communicating God's message. The response 
that's up to those who hear and up to God. It's totally outside of Moses' control. There's an invaluable lesson for Moses here as well as for us. When we witness to a neighbor, when we, when we talk about Christ to a coworker, um, when we lead a Bible study or a Sunday school group, or even when we talk with our kids about Jesus, even when you stand in a pulpit, our responsibility is to faithfully communicate God's word. That in and of itself is success. The results depend on those who hear and upon God, not upon us. Now, in the last sec, uh, part of our passage today, we're going to find out that there is power and judgment in the name Yahweh. Let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. As for you, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh that, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my armies, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I extend my hand over Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So Moses and Aaron did this as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. There is a profound mystery in why God chooses to work through flawed, feeble human beings. Why would the almighty the all-powerful God of the universe choose to give his divine communiques through human messengers. But by speaking through Moses, a man with faltering lips, God's actually demonstrating his power. And then he goes even further. He, he designates um, Moses to speak on his behalf. He gives Moses divine authority. And here Moses again foreshadows Christ. By being God to Pharaoh, um, Moses points us to Jesus, who is God to us. Now Moses, as God to Pharaoh, that actually reinforces, um, or is actually reinforced by Aaron being Moses' prophet before Pharaoh. All Moses has to do is speak the words God gives him. And Aaron repeats the words to Pharaoh. And to Pharaoh, it's just like he's hearing straight from God. We also see the power of Yahweh in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Another of the mysteries of how God works is his sovereignty in the gospel. Some hearts that hear the gospel are softened and respond in faith, which leads to salvation. Other hearts are hardened, rejecting the good news, and they are lost forever. Now, we're going to have more opportunities to delve into hardened hearts as we move through Exodus. 
But for now, we can note that this ability to control Pharaoh's heart, man, this speaks to Yahweh's power over all rulers, over all nations, and over all the gods of the earth. Additionally, God's going to do miraculous signs and wonders, and we'll get into those in detail in the coming weeks. Yet another demonstration of power in the name Yahweh. Now, all of this power is being focused on delivering Israel so that they will know that their God is Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is also going to bring judgment on Egypt through his mighty hand. And we saw the mighty hand back in Exodus 3, verse 20. I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians. And we've seen it a couple of times just today in uh, verse 6 of chapter 6. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And now here in, in chapter 7, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I extend my hand over Egypt to bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. Righteous judgment is coming upon Egypt, and it will be administered by the mighty arm of Yahweh. There is power and judgment in the name Yahweh. The closing verses of our passage are seminal for Moses. We opened chapter 5 with Moses going before Pharaoh and not following God's instructions exactly. We close this two-plus chapter section with these words. So Moses and Aaron did this as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And from here on out, that's exactly what Moses does. He follows the word of the Lord. Such a, a simple concept, isn't it? Just be obedient. But it took Moses quite a while to get it right. In fact, it took him about 80 years. So if you have that concept, if you've got it, and you're less than 80 years old, Pat yourself on the back. You're ahead of Moses. It is simple, but it isn't easy. But as we go forward in Exodus, we are surely going to see that it is worthwhile. Well, last week, we saw Pharaoh ask the central question of Exodus. Who is Yahweh? And this week we see Yahweh's declaration. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I extend my hand over Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. The Israelites too, they're going to know that Yahweh is their God. See, God's purpose throughout Exodus is to reveal himself to Israel and to Egypt and to the entire world. So what have we learned about Yahweh? Well, we've seen that Yahweh is the one who encourages, who instills confidence in those he calls, and he deals with them patiently. 
We've seen that Yahweh is sovereign and he alone brings salvation. Yahweh is faithful. He remembers his covenant and he remembers his people. Yahweh is powerful. So powerful that his power is infinite. And he brings righteous judgment. What's in a name? Well, in the name of Yahweh is all of this and so much more. What else is he going to reveal to us about himself? Would you stand and let's pray. Yahweh, great and mighty God of Exodus, we marvel at the unfathomable depths of who you are. And yet you invite us to come to your throne of grace and to, to enter and call you Abba, Father. Truly, you are beyond our ability to comprehend. What we do know, what we can understand, though, it draws us to you. We praise your faithfulness. We rejoice in your salvation. We're in awe of your power. We thank you for knowing us so well and loving us just as we are. Continue to encourage and exhort where, where we need. And may our faith, our trust, and our confidence in you grow so that we become the people that you desire us to be. May all be to your honor. May all be for your